You're going to love this. Just love it. You may or may not. We'll see how it goes. You may like one minute. You may not like the next. That's the broadcast for you. Not right. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. But I am not scared. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. Yes, I'm stuck in the middle with you. Yes, I am stuck in the middle with you once again, right here live on the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly citizen, investigative blogger, journalist. Troublemaker, muckraker, all-around swell fellow says me from bradblog.com. Joining you live from Los Angeles at the uh, beautiful studios of KPFK, 90.7 FM in L.A., 98.7 FM in Santa Barbara, 93.7 FM in San Diego, 99.5 FM in Ridgecrest and China Lake, and of course, coast to coast and around the globe on kpfk.org. On the Stitcher app, on the TuneIn app on your smart devices. Now also on the Progressive Voices channel on TuneIn. And I'm happy to say, now on the Netroots Radio Network as well. Netroots Radio, welcome aboard. Glad to have y'all as our new affiliate. Good to be with you again on what is an absolute crazy week. Man, I thought, uh, was it a month or two ago when we had the uh, the Boston bombings and everything? I thought that was the news week from hell. No, this apparently really is the news week from hell. I had hoped to come in and talk to you about uh, Edward Snowden and the NSA leaks all day. Uh, and take your phone calls, but there's so much going on this week. I don't know if I'm going to get to them, but I would love to hear from you. 818-985-5735 is our phone number, 818-985-KPFK. I haven't gotten to talk to you in a while, so we'll see if I can fit those in. Um, But just among the things we're going to try to hit today, the Voting Rights Act was demolished by the Supreme Court this week, and I will go into that story in detail. It is a a story I had been warning you about here on the broadcast for some months, Uh, and uh, the worst-case scenario seems to have been uh, played out yesterday. So we're going to talk about that shortly. We're going to talk about yesterday's landmark climate speech by Barack Obama. Desi Doyen will be joining us for that and the Green News Report as usual. We will be talking a little bit about uh, Edward Snowden on the run, specifically journalist Glenn Greenwald being attacked by NBC's David Gregory, suggesting that Greenwald uh, aided and abetted Snowden and uh, should uh, therefore be charged. Well, let's just put it this way. Uh, Here's the question we will ask later in the show. Should NBC's David Gregory be charged with a crime for being a lousy journalist? Yeah. Uh, We'll also, speaking of uh, lousy uh, uh, congressmen, we'll be talking about uh, Daryl Issa and his pretend IRS scandal, which has collapsed, as we told you it would, weeks ago when we told you that it was uh, phony from the jump. And then last night uh, on the floor of the Texas legislature... I don't know if you saw this. It was amazing. Wendy Davis, state senator, Democratic state senator from Texas, filibustered a bill for about 13 hours. It would have drastically restricted abortions and abortion clinics in the Lone Star State. 
Only then to have the Republicans call a roll call vote after midnight, after the session had ended. It was a special session of the Senate that Rick Perry had called specifically to try to pass this abortion bill. Senator Davis uh, filibustered one woman filibuster. You can't sit down. You can't eat. You can't drink. You can't lean on furniture. You can't go out to use the restroom. Only to uh, have stopped at midnight when the session was over. And then the uh, Republicans called a roll call vote anyway and passed the bill after midnight. That's not the most amazing part. The most amazing part is that they went back and they changed the website to make it look like the bill passed the day earlier. No, it didn't. And uh, eventually they gave up the ghost on that one and said, "Okay, yeah, that uh, SB5 abortion bill is dead. But we do have breaking news this afternoon that Governor Perry has now called a second special session of the Texas legislature to address abortion restrictions. So here we go again. Oh, also, uh, Democrat uh, Ed Markey was elected to the Senate. We'll talk about that with Desi Doyen. But as if all of that wasn't enough, uh, the Supreme Court of these United States ruled on two huge cases on uh, marriage equality. The uh, Defense of Marriage Act and California's Prop 8. And to get the uh, skinny on that, I'm joined by Evan Wolfson, a civil rights attorney, founder and president of Freedom to Marry, which was launched to uh, campaign for marriage equality nationwide back in 2003. Well, so far, so good. He is also the author of the book, Why Marriage Matters, America, Equality, and Gay People's Right to Marry. Evan Wolfson joins us now to uh, give us an update or to explain what the hell happened today in the U.S. Supreme Court. I know he's got only a few minutes, as do I, so let's get right to it. Hey, Evan, welcome, sir, to the broadcast. Good to be with you. Great to be with you. Okay, I know you're short on time, so let's jump right in. Prop 8, let's go. we got two decisions, Prop 8 and the Defense of Marriage Act. First, let's hit Prop 8. Uh, what happened? What did the court decide uh, after uh, the uh, right to marriage equality had been banned by voters, r- apparently, at uh, at the polling place uh, in Prop 8 back in 20, uh, what was it, 20, 2008, I guess? That's right. Well, the Supreme Court today took action that now restores the freedom to marry in California. And within a matter of a few weeks, couples will again be issued marriage licenses and will be able to share in the freedom to marry. And what that does is not only make a big difference in the lives of real families and and open up an ocean of joy, but it also restores California as an engine state helping to move the country forward. Once we finish this, uh, this win in just in the next few weeks, about a third of the country will live in a state where gay people have the freedom to marry, over 100 million Americans, up from zero a decade ago. Right. Now, the ruling was a narrow one. In fact, they never got to the actual merits of the case, correct? They decided that uh, the the proponents of the proposition, were who were the ones who, who uh, brought it all the way to the Supreme Court, that they did not have standing here, right? Because That's, the, that's right. They said, yeah. Yeah, I'm sorry, they that's, said okay. the, these anti-gay groups that wanted to bring the appeal basically were not harmed. They couldn't show how how they had any injury. Whereas, by contrast, the governor of California, the attorney general of California, and the previous governor, the previous attorney general, all said that the lower court decision striking down this discriminatory measure was right, and that California wanted to get rid of Prop 8. So the Supreme Court said, this is what the responsible officials of the state are saying. 
and these other groups have no interest. They have no reason to be there. And the effect of that is to restore the freedom to marry in California. So in throwing the case out, essentially, or sending it back uh, for jurisdiction, that means the Supreme Court didn't decide whether uh, marriage equality uh, is constitutional, or rather uh, bans on marriage equality are constitutional across the country. That's a decision now that will get kicked down the road, presumably? Yeah, the strategy we've always had, the strategy that's brought us to this day of huge wins, is the same strategy that's going to win the Freedom to Marry nationwide. And what it says is the way in a country, the way we do our civil rights business in America, is you have to get a critical mass of states and you have to get a critical mass of public support. And together those create the climate that then the right case at the right time in front of the Supreme Court finishes the job. And we didn't hit that sweet spot today, though we made enormous progress, and we're going to now take that momentum win more states, win more support, and get back to the Supreme Court in a matter of years, not decades, and get the job done. Moving on to the Defense of Marriage Act, in this case, we also had nobody uh, who wanted to defend the law, really, on behalf of, uh, at least of the uh, administration. Uh, Defense of Marriage Act, federal uh, act that basically bars federal benefits to uh, same-sex couples, was found unconstitutional in the lower court. The Obama administration said, we don't want to challenge this to the Supreme Court. So the House Republicans jumped in to try to defend that law. What happened on that uh, today, Evan Wolfson, at the Supreme Court? Right. Well, this was a really momentous win today, a very strong, decisive opinion from the Supreme Court saying that the Constitution's command of equality does indeed apply to gay people, too, and the, the government may no longer have a gay exception to the ordinary way in which it treats married couples. Ordinarily, couples who are legally married in the States or in other countries, like Canada or Spain or South Africa, are treated as married by the federal government when it comes to federal protections and responsibilities like Social Security or immigration or health coverage. But DOMA, the so-called Defense of Marriage Act, carved out a gay exception and said that the federal government would not honor the lawful marriages of gay couples. The Supreme Court said that has to end. And this big ruling today turned the federal government from the number one discriminator against gay couples to now being on the side of families and fairness. And again, it adds enormous momentum to our work of winning the freedom to marry nationwide. And if uh, someone, here's uh, what I don't understand about this ruling. If someone is uh, a same-sex couple is uh, same-sex couple is married in a state uh, that allows for marriage equality, uh, they'll they'll now be able to enjoy the the federal benefits that all other married couples will have. But what if that couple moves, let's say they get married in Massachusetts and they move to a state that doesn't have marriage equality, like Ohio. Uh, Does the federal government still have to honor uh, that marriage in Ohio uh, under the full yeah. faith and credit clause of the Constitution? Well, it's, no, it's not a question of the full faith and credit clause. It's rather that the striking down the Defense of Marriage Act, which we did today, uh-huh. doesn't tell states what they can do. So some states are going to continue discriminating, and we're going to have to work on that separately. So states may discriminate, but the question is, should the federal government also discriminate against those couples. And what the courts today said is the federal government should not discriminate. And so the right way to implement that ruling, and President Obama immediately came forward with a statement today saying he's going to move swiftly and strongly to do this, is to say that, look, states may be discriminating, but once you're married, you're married, and the federal government is going to respect your marriage for federal programs 
and federal purposes. Marriages shouldn't be sputtering in and out like cell phone service, depending on what state people are in. So it will be respected even if you were uh, married in one state that allows uh, gay marriage, uh, but you're now living in another. It, you will still be able, under federal law, to file as a married couple and so forth, no matter where you live, correct? Well, that is the, that is the correct implementation that we're now going to work to achieve. And the I president see. today said he's going to direct the attorney general to work with the agencies and to review the laws and to move in the right direction. And happily also, uh, the lead sponsors of the Respect for Marriage Act, the bill in Congress that would repeal this entire discriminatory defense of marriage act and establish clearly the, the standard that you just described, that bill was reintroduced today. Members of Congress moved right into action, and we're calling on Congress to pass that bill, even as we're going to work with the administration to work across federal programs and make sure couples are respected. So that sounds like there's still a lot of fights ahead, despite these victories today at the U.S. Supreme Court. Before I let you go, Evan Wilson, what what do you do? You have a, a an idea, a prediction? Is there a court case out there that you suspect will sort of be the next one up uh, to make its way to the Supreme Court? Uh, well, you know. In this fight? Yeah, it's, it's only been something like seven or eight hours since we won these two big <laughs> ones, so I think it's a little early to be planning the next case. But what we need to be doing, and what Freedom to Marry is already at work on, is working to win the next wave of states and to continue growing public opinion, because those are what set the stage for having the right case at the right time to get the job done. Excellent. Evan Wolfson from Freedom to Marry, freedomtomarry.org. Really appreciate you carving out time for us today. I suspect it's an unbelievably busy one for you. So thanks for doing that, and congratulations uh, on your uh, your big victories today at the Supreme Court. Thank you. We've come a long way, and we're going to finish the job. Thank you, sir. Keep up the good work. We'll have you back for more time next time. Appreciate it. That's Evan Wolfson from freedomtomarry.org. Okay, I'm Brad Friedman. You're listening to the Bradcast, and uh, we're moving again. There was the good news from the Supreme Court. Now let's move to the not-so-good news. Uh, And by the way, you can uh, tweet me at the Brad blog throughout the hour. You can also try to get in. On the phones, we'll try to get to them at 818-985-5735, 818-985-KPFK. Okay, so good news at the Supreme Court, that out of the way. Now to the not-so-good news from Tuesday of this week when the Supreme Court demolished demolished the uh, 48-year-old Voting Rights Act, the centerpiece of our civil rights law in this country, the beloved Civil Rights Act. It was, as I wrote at bradblog.com this week, a remarkable display of judicial overreach, activism, and legislating from the bench. The five Republican-appointed U.S. Supreme Court justices in a narrow 5-4 to ruling have, in the words of dissenting Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, quote, demolished the centerpiece of the nation's 48-year-old Voting Rights Act, ignored the court's own repeated rulings, overrode a repeated and unambiguous mandate from the U.S. Congress, most recently as led by two Republican chambers and signed by a Republican president, and made an absolute joke of the no-uncertain-terms directive of the U.S. Constitution's 15th Amendment. Thank you, Justice Scalia, for pretending to give a damn about the Constitution. In short, the nature of of the uh, Supreme Court ruling effectively gutting the central 
central provision of what is arguably the most important constitutionally mandated and successful civil rights legislation in the nation's history, encompasses everything that the Republican Party has in recent years pretended to abhor when it comes to the judiciary, everything that is but the partisan politics of its historic reach. The majority opinion was authored by Chief Justice John Roberts. It strikes down the constitutionality of the Voting Rights Act, Section 4. Now, that section includes the formulas for determining which jurisdictions around the country will be covered by Section 5. That's the provision of the law which requires jurisdictions with a long history of racial discrimination at the voting booth to receive preclearance from the federal government before new laws with an impact on voting rights can take effect. During the course of 2012, we talked a lot on this show about Section 5 and how it was used, uh, for example, uh, to stop uh, laws, uh, photo ID restriction laws in Texas and in South Carolina. These extreme laws were rejected because the states could not prove to the federal government that those laws would not discriminate against voters. It also blocked uh, draconian restrictions on voter registration programs in Florida, purposefully racially discriminatory congressional redistricting maps in Texas. And now without the ability to identify the requ- uh, jurisdictions requiring preclearance, preclearance for election laws under Section 5, It will only be after those laws have already taken effect and after voters have already been disenfranchised that a voter could try to sue to have those laws overturned, thanks to the Supreme Court decision this week. While the plaintiffs in the case of the uh, Supreme uh, Court ruling uh, Shelby County versus Eric Holder sought to strike down Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act, claiming it was unconstitutional to identify certain jurisdictions but not others that had to get preclearance for their laws. The right-wing majority allowed Section 5 to remain intact but requires Congress to create a new Section 4 formula for determining which jurisdictions will be covered by it. They asserted that, quote, the nation is no longer divided along the lines that were initially developed in 1965. Of course, that's true. Those lines have been modified since. Jurisdictions are able to bail out. Others are uh, they're able to bail them in. If, in fact, a jurisdiction is able to demonstrate that it is not racially discriminatory in its election laws, they can get out. They, they, They can no longer be. They will no longer be a Section 5 state. And yet the Supreme Court had to come in. And do it for us. They couldn't let the Congress decide, despite the fact that the Congress in the Constitution is specifically, specifically given the task of having the power to enforce the 15th Amendment. In case you don't know, the 15th Amendment, it's it's just two lines. It's really simple. Even Antonin Scalia could read it. Even Clarence Clarence Thomas could understand it. The 15th Amendment bars restrictions on the right to vote, quote, by any state on account of race, color or previous condition of servitude. That's Section 1. That's the entirety of it. Section 2 says that the Congress shall have the power to enforce this article by appropriate legislation. That's it. That's the entire 15th Amendment. And it took about 100 years 
for Congress to take the power to enforce the article by appropriate legislation with the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Now, that uh, law has been uh, reauthorized four times since its initial passage in 1965. In the 25 years since its passage, it has stopped over a thousand proposed discriminatory voting changes from taking effect, according to the NAACP. But what is most remarkable to me is here is a case where the Congress actually did its job. Even as recently as 2006, the Congress actually did its job. As I say, it reauthorized the Voting Rights Act four times since 1965, and in 2006, it reauthorized the act as is for another 25 years. The vote back in 2006 to reauthorize for 25 years was a unanimous 98 to nothing in the U.S. Senate. 98 to nothing. Nothing passes 98 to nothing in the U.S. Senate. And it was an overwhelming 390 to 33 in the U.S. House. The bill passed uh, following some 21 hearings led by uh, a Republican at the time. Uh, Republicans controlled all uh, the House and the Senate and the White House back in 2006. James Sensenbrenner, kind of a wingnut. He oversaw uh, these hearings uh, and the collection of some 15,000 pages of documentation supporting the continuing need for Section 5, which is now useless without Section 4, because Section 4 identifies the jurisdictions, many of them states in the South, but even jurisdictions, I believe, here in California. Uh, without Section 4, you can't do anything about Section 5. You, 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 you can't require any of these jurisdictions to submit their new laws for approval before they are put into effect. You must wait until thousands of Americans are disenfranchised. Sensenbrenner recently said that during the hearings, quote, there was a lot of invidious discrimination that was shown. He characterized the hearings uh, that closely examine, uh, examine the extent of racial discrimination and how it still affects minority voters as, quote, one of the most extensive considerations of any piece of legislation that the United States Congress has dealt with in 27 and a half years that I have served. That was Sensenbrenner. Just before it was passed, in the Senate, 98 to nothing. In the House, 390 to 33. It was then signed by George W. Bush. It was the fourth time it was uh, reauthorized. The three previous federal reauthorizations were also by Republicans. And again, we have a case, one of those rare cases of the Congress actually doing its job, doing the job that is called for in the Constitution, for those of you who still believe in the Constitution. When it says that, quote, the Congress shall have power to enforce the article by appropriate legislation. And yet that was not good enough for the majority on the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court, where Antonin Scalia, during the hearings for the oral hearings uh, on, on this case, called the Voting Rights Act a perpetual racial entitlement. So the uh, the I got I'm sorry. This uh, just infuriates me. Uh, the the judiciary uh, decided that they and they alone 
had the right uh, to enforce this law or to see that it was not enforced. And that's exactly what they did this week. Uh, The uh, opponents of the Voting Rights Act, like the uh, folks in Texas, South Carolina, Mississippi, Alabama, have wasted no time in saying, well, yay, all of the uh, voting uh, laws that were turned down because they were racially discriminatory, we are now putting them in effect immediately. And that's what they're doing. That's what they did in Texas, despite the fact that in March of 2012, the Department of Justice rejected preclearance for a Republican polling place photo ID restriction in that state because it found, for example, that based on the data that was supplied by the state of Texas, registered Hispanic voters were anywhere from 46 percent to 120 percent more likely than non-Hispanic voters to lack the state-issued ID needed to vote under that new restriction. That's what the DOJ found based on Texas's own uh, statistics. And then in August of 2012, a federal court panel upheld that ruling after Texas had uh, appealed it. They found that the new state, uh, the new law in the Lone Star State would, quote, almost certainly have a retrogressive effect as it imposes strict, unforgiving burdens on the poor and racial minorities in Texas who are disproportionately likely to live in poverty. Similarly, last September, the Department of Justice also found that a congressional redistricting plan in Texas, quote, was adopted at least in part for the purpose of diminishing the ability of citizens of the United States on account of race, color or membership in a language minority group to elect their preferred candidates of choice to the Texas House of Representatives. The DOJ also determined that the law would have a retrogressive effect on minority voters' ability to, quote, elect their preferred candidates of choice to the United States House of Representatives. On Tuesday, yesterday, however, despite all of that, once the Supreme Court came down with their ruling, Republican Texas Attorney General Greg Abbott was delighted. He said, quote, with today's decision... The state's voter ID law will take effect immediately. Redistricting maps passed by the legislature may also take effect without approval from the federal government. So these laws, which have found to be racially discriminatory, are now being enacted in Texas, in South Carolina, in North Carolina, in Alabama, in Mississippi, All over, thanks to the Supreme Court, who has gutted the most effective piece of legislation. I was going to say the most effective piece of civil rights legislation, but perhaps the most effective piece of legislation, period, in the history of this country. So what will happen next? Can Congress fix this law now that they have uh, been told that uh, that it's up to them? to figure out the new formula to determine the jurisdictions that will be uh, subject to Section 5? I mean, after all, every Republican in the U.S. Senate back in 2006 voted in favor of this law. So surely they would like to see it uh, uh, renewed and corrected, right? Maybe not. After the passage of, uh, after the ruling was released uh, on Tuesday by the U.S. Supreme Court... The uh, majority uh, leader, I guess the minority leader, uh, Mitch McConnell, in the Senate was asked whether 
Republicans were going to get together to work to fix what the Supreme Court had broken. Here's what Mitch McConnell had to say. Senator, what's your reaction to the Supreme Court ruling on the voting rights action? Well, I haven't read it yet. Uh, obviously, it's an important uh, bill that passed back in the 60s at a time when we had a very different America than we have today. Uh, my state is not covered by the Voting Rights Act. There may be others who want to comment on it. I'm, at this point, I think I'm just going to have to read it first. Uh, but I would say I do think America is very different today from, from what it was in the 1960s. Really? Anybody else want to comment on that? Uh-huh. Yeah. Really, how, how different is it today than it was in 2006, Senator McConnell, when you and every single member of your caucus voted in favor of it? Or are you that desperate that you need to keep people from voting because otherwise you realize a Republican can never win another presidential election again unless you keep people from voting? The question is not, uh, is America different than it was in 1965 when this law was drawn up? Because the jurisdictions that were covered have changed since then. And those that weren't discriminatory could opt out, could bail out of the program if they proved that they were not uh, discriminating against racial minorities. The question is not, has it changed since 1965? The question is, has it changed since 2006 when you, Senator, and all of the Republicans in the U.S. Senate voted to reauthorize this law as is for 25 years? That's the question. And are you going to do anything about it? Or are you going to let all of these states, all of these Republican governors, all of these Republican attorneys general simply turn back the clock, simply turn on those laws that have been rejected over and over and over again for being discriminatory? Or don't you give a damn, Senator McConnell? This little light of mine, I'm going. This little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine. This little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine. Let it shine. We're going to take a quick break here on the broadcast. Here's an idea. How about Section 5? Just protect everybody. Just everybody, every state has to get preclearance for their laws. Sounds good to me. How about a constitutional amendment that says uh, the right to vote for everyone, 18 years of age and older, period, end of story. That'll help. Man, what a mess. Love to hear from you. 818 985 5735. Your phone calls, the idiocy of David Gregory and Daryl Issa, and the loveliness of Desi Doyen, 
all straight ahead right here on the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Oh, yeah, our phone number, 818-985-5735. Give us a shout. I'm Brad Friedman. This is the Bradcast. from Radio Aphrodisia. Join us every Saturday as we nice up your weekend. It's all about music from Africa and the African world. Radio Aphrodisia, 4 to 6 p.m. It's Champeta Criola from the coast of Caribe, Soca Calypso, Juju Music, Musica Afro-Cubana, Cha Cha Cha, Afrobeat High Life. It's all in the mix. Radio Aphrodisia, Saturdays, 4 to 6 p.m. Showtime. Tune in. Going out to Edward Snowden, run, baby, run. Uh, welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman on KPFK and everywhere else. Glad you could join us. Our phone number is 818-985-5735. 818-985-KPFK if you'd like to get into uh, into the Bradcast here. Uh, before I hit the phones here, let me just... Uh, <laughs> I had really wanted to talk about Edward Snowden a lot because I was up at uh, Netroots Nation conference over the weekend in uh, in San Jose, and there is a wild disparity uh, amongst uh, progressives whether they support Snowden, whether they don't, whether they uh, you know they they support uh, Glenn Greenwald, which is amazing to me. Uh, the the number of prog- supposed progressives that I have seen attacking Glenn Greenwald of the Guardian for doing his job and reporting on this. Uh, whistleblower Ed Snowden. It's rather amazing. But I guess I shouldn't be amazed because we have, uh, pardon me, but jackasses like David Gregory of NBC, uh, who on Sunday had uh, had, <laughs> had Glenn Greenwald on as Edward Snowden had slipped the authorities out of Hong Kong and disappeared into the night, apparently showing up in Moscow, though we haven't seen him yet. We don't really know if he's there. Uh, and what David Gregory actually said to Glenn Greenwald actually blew my mind. Uh, here's what he asked him at the uh, at the very end of the uh, the interview. David Gregory on NBC's Meet the Press. Um, to the extent that you have aided and abetted Snowden, even in his current movements, why shouldn't you, Mr. Greenwald, be charged with a crime? To the what? To the what, David Gregory? To the extent that you have aided and abetted. Edward Snowden, 
even in his current movements? Really? What evidence do you have for that? Aiding and abetting Snowden, Snowden has been charged, after all, with a felony, with felony espionage. Never mind the lack of evidence for espionage uh, to, to, at this point to charge against Snowden, but aiding and abetting uh, a, a man uh, that the federal government says is committing espionage? Seriously? And why shouldn't you, Mr. Greenwald, be charged with a crime? He's asking a fellow journalist? Really? A crime for reporting on what a whistleblower has to say, for reporting on documents that have been leaked to this whistleblower? My God. I saw Daniel Ellsberg over the weekend uh, up in Berkeley, and, uh, you know, he's just been on a tear about this. We had him on the show a couple of weeks ago to talk about this. He sees uh, Snowden as a, as a courageous patriot. But the idea, I thought we settled this in 1971. U.S. versus New York Times, when uh, you know it was determined by the Supreme Court that the New York Times could print, if they liked, the classified uh, Pentagon papers. That's exactly what Glenn Greenwald has done. And somehow, David Gregory has turned that into aiding and abetting Snowden? And that a journalist should be charged with a crime? Really? This is the top guy at NBC? Uh, here was uh, Glenn Greenwald's response uh, to that frankly, appalling question from David Gregory. I think it's pretty extraordinary that anybody who would call themselves a journalist would publicly muse about whether or not other journalists should be charged with felonies. The assumption in your question, David, is completely without evidence, the idea that I've aided and abetted him in any way. The scandal that arose in Washington before our stories began was about the fact that the Obama administration is trying to criminalize investigative journalism by going through the, the emails and phone records of AP reporters, accusing a Fox News journalist of the theory that you just embraced, being a co-conspirator with felony in felonies for working with sources. If you want to embrace that theory, it means that every investigative journalist in the United States who works with their sources, who receives classified information, is a criminal. And it's precisely those theories and precisely that climate that has become so menacing in the United States. Yeah, it, it absolutely has. So just to repeat, David Gregory says, to the extent that you have aided and abetted uh, Snowden, even in his current movements, why shouldn't you, Mr. Greenwald, be charged with a crime? Greenwald uh, tweeted during Meet the Press after he got off the air, uh, quote, who needs the government to try to criminalize jur journalism when you have David Gregory to do it? Yeah, you think? Eric Wemple at the Washington Post said, uh, well, to the extent that you you might as well ask, to the extent that you have murdered your neighbor, why shouldn't you, Mr. Greenwald, be charged with a crime? There is, of course, no evidence that Greenwald murdered anyone. Neither is there evidence that he aided and abetted Snowden. Greenwald also echoed uh, uh, that response uh, in an interview with Michael Calderon at HuffPo. He said, it's like saying to the, to the extent that you molested children, should you be arrested as a pedophile? <sighs> That's what suffices for our mainstream media. The top uh, NBC News Sunday show, uh, weekend uh, Sunday show anchor David Gregory asked questions like that. Also, Andrew Ross Sorkin, I'm not even going to bother to play it because I'd rather talk to you guys, but uh, also went on the air on CNBC. Andrew Ross Sorkin is also a columnist for New York Times. And uh, he asked whether, um, well, what did he say? He, he basically said, I would arrest Snowden, and now I'd almost arrest Glenn Greenwald. That's another journalist. Of course, I put journalist in quotes because he works at the New York Times. 
<laughs> so, you know, uh, Greenwald responded to him as well, asking, uh, hey, Andrew Sorkin, should the New York Times editors and reporters who publish classified information about false Iraq WMD claims, should they be arrested? Good question. Uh, let's get some calls here real quick. 818 And before I get to the next idiot, which is Daryl Issa, just in case you're keeping score at home, 818-985-5735 is our phone number. 818-985-KPFK. Randy in Tustin, welcome, sir, to the broadcast. Thank you. I wanted to comment on the first issue you stated regarding the uh, Voting Rights Act. Mm-hmm. I would agree with Mitch McConnell in that, yes, the climate has changed from 1965 to now. And the change is, instead of it being in your face, I'm prejudiced, you're black, I'm white, or you're not white or Latino, but now it's much more subdued, which makes it a lot worse. Mm. And they can get away a lot more now, because as long as you behave properly and you don't squeal, then thus, now that the Republicans will have, just like you said before, every opportunity to win the elections they know they never would win. Yeah. Well, you're right. I mean, it is certainly more covert, I, I think, than it used to be, Correct. you know, rather than overt and, uh, you know, riding around on horses with hoods and, and, and lynching people and giving these uh, uh, these literacy tests and everything. Now it's about, oh, it's, it's about voter fraud. We're just trying to secure the ballot because your vote will be diluted uh, if, you know, if, if someone else commits uh, voter fraud. Never mind that they never do. Never mind that a, a recent study by a news consortium looked at every single election case, every single election fraud case going back to 2000 in every state, all 50 states, found just 10 instances of polling place uh, uh, impersonation, polling place voter fraud, the only type of uh, voter fraud that can possibly be deterred by photo ID. So, you know, they've got this clever scam and they've got many people in America thinking, yeah, that's right. We need to have that. Why shouldn't you have to identify yourself when you go to, to, to vote with a, with a photo ID? Never mind the fact that 20 million Americans, mostly Hispanic and uh, other minorities, black and Hispanic and elderly and students, they don't have the type of photo ID that would be required. But, you know, it's an insidious scam, and you're right. Uh, it's very clever, and I, I think you're right. We need the Voting Rights Act now more than ever. Uh, thanks, Randy. I appreciate your call. Uh, as, a matter of, as a matter of fact, uh, Ruth, Gator, Ruth Bader Ginsburg had said it is like uh, throwing away your umbrella in a rainstorm just because you're not getting wet. Yeah. That's about right. Throw the throw the umbrella away. You're going to get real wet. And I'm afraid we're about to get real wet. Uh, let's go to Gion in uh, Ventura. Hey, Gion, welcome, sir or lady, to the broadcast. Yeah, I was just thinking that we it's need a, a sir. new It's right? a sir. Yeah, go ahead. Same as, as, as it was in the 60s, which is definitely, you know, debatable. But um, if, if, that's, if that's the point of argument, then we need to reinvent us movement in terms of what's happening now with NSA, privacy, and, and uh, personal rights. And you, you broke up a little bit there, Gian. We need to invent a movement to do what? Uh, have, a, have a new civil rights movement. Yeah, well, you know, we, we still have the old civil rights movement, frankly, that is still fighting, unfortunately. If you followed, uh, and, you know, we covered this uh, all last year and, and the year before and the year before that at bradblog.com, uh, you know, there is fights in every single state to make sure that people can cast their vote. And this, and year after year, these guys are passing more and more insidious laws. So, yeah, 
there's already a civil rights movement uh, growing. We need to grow it larger. It needs to involve every American who gives a damn about democracy and the Constitution in this country. Thanks, Gianna. I do appreciate the call. Let me uh, get to very quickly Jeremy in uh, in uh, Santa Ana. Hey, Jeremy, welcome to the broadcast. Yeah, I was I was pretty appalled by David Gregory as well, and unfortunately, it's it's not new. Um, you know, Orwell alluded to this fact how um, you know literary censorship. Uh, he was talking about England, but um, it applies here too. It's largely voluntary, he said, and that you don't need uh, to have the government intervene to have censorship. You know, it's basically the press. He said is run by wealthy men who have every interest in being dishonest on certain important topics. So clearly our, our media, just like back then, is functioning as a propaganda um, model. And asses like David Gregory, are, are they don't even think about it. It's so ingrained in them. They think it's just natural to, you know, let the government get away with crimes because it's his job mm-hmm. to be a corporate a corporate bitch, if yep. you don't mind I, I don't mind you saying that at all. As a matter of fact, uh, you know, a lot of the... Thanks for the, uh, for the call, Jeremy. A lot of the uh, whistleblowers, Bradley Manning, you know, uh, guys who went to WikiLeaks, was because they could not trust... The mainstream media. They saw the New York Times, uh, you know, sit on stories during the Bush administration for a year before they released any information uh, on the phone tapping that was going, the massive warrantless wiretapping that was going on back there. And, and, you know, and so I can hardly blame him. I can hardly blame Edward Snowden for going to Glenn Greenwald at The Guardian. Had he gone to The New York Times, uh, the entire story might have disappeared. And that was one of the things that he said that he was uh, that he was worried about. Um, all right, we'll get back to your calls in a moment, 818-985-5735, but I don't want to run out of time before I notice uh, the next dolt of the week, Daryl Issa. Man, is this guy stupid. Is he just, is he this stupid or is he just this clever and you know insidious? Is he this much of a crook? We told you weeks ago on this show that the IRS quote-unquote scandal was pretend, that it was not really a scandal at all. And this we learned because we bothered to read the Inspector General's report. We didn't watch what other people said about it. We actually read what was in the report. And what was in the report was that it was a vast minority of Tea Party-related groups that were identified for uh, for scrutiny by the IRS, Tea Party-related groups, a Tea Party, Patriot, whatever, they had that in their name. It was a vast minority. It was about one-third of the groups who were flagged. So who were those other two-thirds? And why didn't the uh, inspector general tell us? Well, it turns out he didn't tell us because Daryl Issa, who asked for this uh this audit, this investigation by the IG, had only asked him to look at terms uh, that were right-wing groups, Patriot, Tea Party, etc. Well, what do you know? They're now releasing the documentation now that the uh, everybody's been fired, now that Barack Obama has, instead of investigating, just came out, fired everybody, said there was misconduct, outrageous misconduct, that there was not. He's fired everyone, put in new people, uh, and uh, asked for an investigation after the firing is done. And what did he find out? He found out that, uh, in fact, progressive groups were targeted. Groups with the word occupy in their name, progressive in their names, uh, groups that dealt with disputed territories in the Middle East, according to these findings. 
So the, at one point, uh, w- one of these uh, lists, one of the uh, IRS uh, folks said that the common thread is the word progressive, a look, uh, uh, an instruction list says. Activities appear to lean toward a new political party. Act- activities are partisan and appear as anti-Republican. Yes, the progressives were targeted too. In other words, the IRS was doing its job to make sure that those who were applying for tax-exempt status weren't doing political work. They ended up approving them all anyway, and they were doing political work, but uh, no, there's no scandal here. Oh, and Daryl Issa, who refused to release the transcripts of the interviews that he had had uh, as chair of the Oversight Committee with these IRS uh, uh, officials, turns out that the guy who first okayed the plan to identify political groups by using names like Tea Party is a, quote, conservative Republican. Imagine that. Yes, no scandal here at all in the least. As we told you a month and a half ago, you can read our latest update at bradblog.com. Uh, you should read Bradblog more often. It, uh, it makes you smarter. Let's do some green news. It's not easy being green. It seems you blend in with so many other ordinary things. Speaking of making you smarter, (laughs) hey, Desi Doyen. Uh, So it was a crazy news week. And in the middle of this crazy, insane news week, out comes Barack Obama, finally, with a major uh, policy speech on climate change. Yeah. Funny how he squeezed that in amongst all the other stuff going on. Uh, And when nobody uh, noticed it because of everything else going on. Yeah. That might be part of the design so as not to attract too much attention or firepower from fossil fuel companies. But we'll get to that in a moment. Oh, you're saying he's that smart? He's playing a three-dimensional chess again? I don't think so. Probably not. Yeah. I don't think he he expected a Supreme Court decision of the Voting Rights Act to come out on a Tuesday. They never come out on Tuesday. They come out on Mondays, maybe sometimes Wednesdays. Anyway, we talk about that in our latest Green News report, which uh, let's go ahead and uh, play now, and then we'll uh, pick it up with another minute or two of follow-up with you. Hit it, G. A Green News special report. As a president... As a father, and as an American, I'm here to say we need to act. President Obama's climate change speech, his warnings, his initiatives, and what it means for the future. All of that and more straight ahead. From Bradblog.com, I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyen. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. I don't have much patience for anyone who denies that this challenge is real. We don't have time for a meeting of the Flat Earth Society. Oh, great. There goes my weekend plans. This is your Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen, I know we got a lot to get to, but I want to welcome aboard our newest affiliate partner this week. Netroots Radio joins the Green News Report family. Glad to have you all on board. Woohoo! Welcome. It was a huge speech, a huge address by President Obama this afternoon. Yes, it was an historic speech at Georgetown University on Tuesday. President Obama launched his second term agenda on climate change, making the moral and economic case for climate action. He'll use mostly executive powers to do that that don't require congressional action for the most part. He opened with the economic costs of climate impacts that are already occurring. Americans across the country are already paying the price of inaction. So the question now is whether we will have the courage to act before it's too late. 
President Obama focused then on the economic opportunities in innovation to address climate change. His plan focuses on three fronts, cutting emissions, bracing for climate impacts, and leading international action. Now, the first initiative to cut emissions is a big deal to establish the first ever standards for power plant emissions. These are required by law, and he noted power plants have enjoyed a free ride on your dime. Power plants can still dump unlimited amounts of carbon pollution into the air for free. That's not right, that's not safe, and it needs to stop. Today, for the sake of our children and the health and safety of all Americans, I'm directing the Environmental Protection Agency to put an end to the limitless dumping of carbon pollution from our power plants and complete new pollution standards for both new and existing power plants. Now, the coal industry and other major polluting industries are going to sue. They'll cost us several years of action trying to stop these changes in the courts. But the writing is on the wall. On Monday, in advance of his speech, coal company stocks took a dive as reality apparently just now dawned on investors. And now, all of these executive actions he's calling for are actually mandated, are they not, by the law, by the uh, Supreme Court, who said and that action has to be taken here? By the Clean Air Act as well. As part of the plan to reduce emissions, the president will also increase energy efficiency standards for appliances, renewable energy development on public lands. The federal government will get 20 percent of its energy from renewable sources by 2020, and the military is going to build and test renewable energy innovation, all of which will spark economic growth. A low-carbon, clean energy economy can be an engine of growth for decades to come. Obama was also bullish on natural gas, as he called it, a transition fuel to power the economy while we wait for cleaner energy sources to be deployed. That's a fracking transition fuel. Right. The problem now is regulation of fracking, which is still up for grabs. Obama also hit on the controversial Keystone XL pipeline from Canada. National interest will be served only if this project does not significantly exacerbate the problem of carbon pollution. A little bit of wiggle room there. What's the definition of significantly? Indeed, and I know a lot of the environmentalists were kind of excited when word leaked out uh, just before the speech that he was going to withhold approval of the pipeline if it was shown that there was going to be significant increases in carbon. Now some people are saying, well, he might refer to the State Department report, which showed that, uh, well, it won't have that significant an effect on the environment. So after cutting emissions, the second part of his agenda is to brace for impact, preparing the infrastructure of the nation for resilience against the impacts we're already seeing from extreme weather and those that are to come. More fires, more droughts, floods, and higher sea levels. Those, however, will require Congress to approve spending. His third major component, leading international action, ending U.S. financing of new overseas coal-fired power plants in developing countries, signing clean energy free trade agreements to help developing nations skip over the pollution phase of development, and signing the U.N.'s upcoming climate treaty. That's due in 2016 and will fall to whoever is president and in the Senate in 2016, which is why Obama called on all of us who understand climate science to speak up and vote. Push back on misinformation. Speak up for the facts. And remind everyone who represents you at every level of government that sheltering future generations against the ravages of climate change is a prerequisite for your vote. Make yourself heard on this issue. Is this more great words from Obama and that won't be followed by action? That remains to be seen. That is the question we will be watching in the weeks and months ahead. All right. Well, I choose to dream big for a few more minutes. 
until things all fall apart. For much more on the president's speech today and the items we couldn't get to because of it, thanks Obama, please stop by our website at greennews.bradblog.com. Find us and like us on the Facebook and follow us 24-7 on the Twitters at Green News Report. From bradblog.com, I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyle. And this has been your Green News Report. Dream on, dream on. Dream yeah, okay. On. <laughs> well, he got he, he got us through the night with that speech. Uh, but now today, what what are the environmental? Good job, by the way, on the green news. What 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 are the environmentalists saying about that speech? Are they encouraged? Are they hopeful? Yes, I can say off the bat, all of them, all of the big environmental groups, and even the small ones too, are very encouraged by this. But they all say this is not far enough. It is an excellent first step when you look at the math. Cutting these uh, these initiatives that Obama mentioned in his speech are not going to add up to be enough. There still needs to be more done, but it is a good first step. And those environmentalists are no Obama bots, they. they no, they quite, are not. Quite tough on them. And that they were, as a matter of fact, Al Gore uh, said that this was the greatest uh, speech on climate ever given by a president. Yeah, but that's a pretty low bar. Really? Unfortunately, Because yeah. there's been so few. Not Al Gore. You're saying the fact that there's been so few yes, climate-related speeches. Yes, not impressing speeches. Al Gore. I there see. have been so few presidential re- climate-related speeches of this magnitude. I mean, it, it is a very big speech, and I encourage uh, people to look at it and read it because it has a lot in it. Uh, but I would say also, though, that new polls show that most Americans agree that Congress and President, the federal government, in other words, should act. Uh, something like 87 percent, I think, was the last poll that said uh, that 87 percent of Americans want Congress and the federal government to act, and that included 78% of self-identified Republicans. Yeah, huge number of Republicans as well. So uh, that's, that's positive and useful. When you keep getting uh, whacked around with these uh, uh, tornadoes and floods and droughts and wildfires, uh, I think you can't help but begin to get the message. Uh, okay, uh, thank you, Desi Doyen, very much. Uh, check out our uh, upcoming report at greennews.bradblog.com or on iTunes or on Stitcher or wherever you want to find us. Uh, my thanks to you, Desi Doyen, our producer, to G, our soundboard operator. You'll uh, you'll want to stay tuned for John Wiener and the 4 o'clock report. He'll have more on the Voting Rights Act and our lawless, anti-constitutional Supreme Court. Don't want to miss that. I'll be back with you, same Brad time, same Brad channel, next week. Until then, you can tweet me at the Blog. And you can find me at bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. Good night, America.